Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming. Action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. If you haven't heard, HBO has had another identity crisis. HBO Max becomes Max on May 23rd which will include all of the legacy HBO shows, plus stuff from Warner Brothers, the DC Universe, Cartoon Network, the Turner Library, Looney Tunes, Adult Swim, and more. And the addition of Discovery includes HGTV, the Food Network, TLC, Magnolia, and more. If you already have a subscription, it'll automatically update to Max on May 23rd. Elizabeth Taylor came in there a couple of times with her bodyguard. Of course, she was married to John Warner at that time. That was Terry Ray talking about Elizabeth Taylor coming to see a movie at the Biograph Cinema. Terry was the first manager of the Biograph, which was Richmond's iconic repertory cinema from 1972 to 1987, bringing all manner of foreign and art film to its Gray Street location near VCU. Terry Ray was hired as the first manager, a job he held for 12 years, and he joins me to reminisce about everything, from fighting the censors to show movies like Deep Throat, hosting the Rocky Horror Midnight Craze, and finding a dead man in the theater. Sifter Review of the Week Dead Ringers on Amazon Prime Video Many people will recall Cronenberg's 1988 thriller with Jeremy Irons as twin doctors, but there was actually an earlier version starring Betty Davis. This new incarnation is a series that cast Rachel Wise as the identical siblings with a creepily close relationship. There are also brilliant gynecologists who are researching innovative and possibly illegal ways to create life. The first episode is dark and disturbing, including the most explicit birth montage I've ever seen. Things are still weird in episode two, but soon after it becomes a relationship drama, losing sight of the sci-fi elements. It has a slick visual style and compelling cinematography, plus some creepy body elements. To top it off, Weiss is brilliant in both roles, creating two different women with equally troubling issues. While the concept swings big, the promise to the first few episodes is diluted by too much romance, which renders the series ultimately disappointing. I gave Dead Ringers two and a half out of five stars. Terry Ray, I wanted to ask you if you remembered, obviously I reviewed TV and theater for many, many years, starting at Channel 6 in style. My first actual in-print review was for Carol Cass when you were having the Russ Meyer Film Festival come to the Biograph, and I wrote a treatise on why Russ Meyer was so important. Do you recall that at all? Almost. <laughs> Footnote. Carol Cass was the prominent film reviewer for the Richmond Times-Dispatch for more than 25 years. Anyway, it was kind of cool, and I am going to post a link to that on this webpage for the show so you can read it and everybody else can. So you were at the Biograph for 12 years, and you were the first manager. How did you get that offer? How did you find out about it? I found out about the uh, theater being built fairly early, and I, I found the uh, owners. One of the things I offered was some radio ads that I had made. I was working at WRNL at that time. And what were you doing there? Were you in sales? I was selling and I was writing ads and, and producing. And apparently that's one of the things they were looking for. They wanted a local guy who could write. They wanted a local guy who could promote. And they thought I was the guy. It was conceived as a repertory cinema. Explain what that is as opposed to just going to Movie Land or the West Hampton or some of the other theaters in town. Some people would call what we were doing a, a calendar house. Right. And that referred to the programs that we uh, put out. 
the repertory meant that you played split weeks, which means three days of one program, then three days of another or four days of another. A lot of double features, very little emphasis on any first run films. I had the calendar on the fridge all the time so you could see exactly what was coming. You could plan, okay, if I want to see this, I got to go on one of these three days. That eventually changed. How did that evolve when you were no longer allowed to do that? Because you couldn't do first runs, which you mentioned earlier. How did you work your way into some first runs? Because I know eventually you were able to do that. Neighborhood theaters was the dominant chain. Right. And the only way we could get a first run film, most of the time it was foreign films, or underground, uh, the only way we could get one would be if Neighborhood had passed on it. So they would scrape the cream off the top and play right. five or six foreign films every year, and the rest of them wouldn't come to town at all. So then you, we had to pick through what was overlooked and see if some way we could promote it and make it successful in Richmond. And we had a spring festival of all foreign films uh, in 1973, which was the beginning of our second year of operation. And it didn't go over all that well. We learned from it. Well, let me ask you about this, because I know one of the other things that developed later was the midnight movies. Where did that idea come from, and how did you start programming those? We started with them pretty much in the summer of 72, which was our first year of operation. I knew the guys at GOE, so I got together with them, and we came up with some funny commercials. Footnote. GOE, or WGOE, was Richmond's album-oriented rock station in the 70s. What we could do with our uh, midnight shows was different from our calendar in that the calendar programs, if a film did well, you'd bring it back in a month or two. Right. Whereas with midnight shows, they only played Friday and Saturday night. And if it did well, you could hold it over. That opened the door to something that ended up paying the bills for us for a while. Now, this was simultaneously, Ray Bentley was running his midnight movies at the uh, Ridge and the other neighborhood theaters at the same time. Well, Is that right? according to your podcast, he started doing that in 74. Okay. So, so we were doing it for a couple of years before he was. Uh-huh. But he had, he had the big auditorium. So right, sure. we couldn't compete with him once he got going. Once he learned the ropes, he certainly uh, knew what he was doing. Besides the art films, I know there uh, there were a couple of great stories, like the first time something X played. Yes, Deep Throat, what we played as a midnight show, played for 16 weekends in a row. It was uh, also on the bill was Louis Bunuel's Andalusian Dog. Footnote. Deep Throat was a 1972 porno that ushered in the golden age of porn. An Andalusian Dog was a 1929 French silent short created by Louis Buñuel and Salvador Dali. Which was a forbidden film back in 1929, so we thought it would be funny to put the two of them together. <laughs> very and different we, films. <laughs> very much so, and we got a kick out of it because uh, we played, of course, Andalusian Dog played as a short subject first. Right. And whenever you get to that eyeball slicing scene, you could hear the collective groan all the way up <laughs> candy counter. We could hear them. That was our signal to close the box office and start counting up. Now, what about that? Weren't there some legal issues with that? I know y'all got some hot water on some of those uh, X-rated movies. How did that play out? Well, the hot water came with The Devil and Miss Jones. Okay, which, that was the was second one. In the summer of 73, and we had already played Deep Throat. The same director and distributor was for the second one as well. Deep Throat, we had no trouble with at all. Wow. In fact, it was it was kind of funny. In New York and Washington, it was banned. 
but in Richmond, we could play it. <laughs> and that was the one that Judge Lumpkin shut down. And how did that end up playing out? Did it come back or did it? was that the end of it? Well, it shut down after nine days. He had us bring it down to neighborhood theaters, screening room downtown, and he watched it to see whether or not it was too extreme for Richmond. He told us at the time he hadn't seen a movie in a theater since sometime in the 50s. Wow. So he was a little shocked when he <laughs> saw The Devil and Miss Jones. And in fact, he wasn't just shocked. He was pissed off. Huh. And so he decided to just shut it down. And there was a trial that opened on Halloween Day. I'm not sure if he picked it deliberately, but uh, it was decided that the film was too obscene for the Richmond market. He brought in people from Henrico County, uh, all went to the same church, as I remember it. And they were the witnesses. And they all said it was too gross for them. We brought in experts on freedom of speech and film, and uh, they weren't listened to at all. So huh. it was shut down. And we were never busted. The, action, the court action was against the film itself. I have had arguments with people who tell me that I was arrested and the film was hauled off and all of that. And there are people that believe that, but it's, it's just not true. Well, that makes a much better story. And speaking of stories, surprise guest drop in. This is your old pal, Tom. Footnote. Tom Campanoli worked at the Biograph from 1973 to 1986. He started as an usher and ended up as assistant manager. Well, t Tom was hired, as I remember it, maybe the spring of uh, 73. And he ended up being the guy who worked at the Biograph the longest of anyone. Wow. So, Tom, since you were there for so long, what are a couple of things you remember about that? Well, one of them was uh, when uh, uh, Tom Wolfe brought his mother, his elderly mother, like a Sunday afternoon to the Biograph to see uh, Citizen Kane. Footnote. Tom Wolfe was a Richmond-born author known for his summer suits and books like The Bonfire of the Vanities. Was he in a white suit? Uh, he was not in a white. It was a pinstripe suit. It was okay. like a seersucker suit. And not, not a lot of people recognized him. But he walked in and was like, oh, my God, that's Tom Wolf." But there was no hoopla or anything. He just came in and saw the movie with his mom? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. You remember that, Terry? I remember the story. I wasn't there where it happened. Yeah. Oh, okay. That was after you run a, when you run a movie theater, any kind of people who love movies that are in town are likely to end up in the biograph. I remember Timothy Bottoms coming by there one time when he mm -hmm. was shooting Roller Coaster, wasn't it? Footnote. Roller Coaster was a 1977 thriller starring Timothy Bottoms that was partially shot at King's Dominion. For some reason, that most of these celebrities scheduled a uh, visit when I wasn't there. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Martin Sheen came a couple times when he was in town shooting uh, Kennedy. Footnote. Kennedy was a 1983 TV series starring Martin Sheen as President John F. Kennedy. And uh, the interesting thing was we were showing a documentary, uh, Say I Men Somebody. It was a gospel documentary. Right. Great movie. He was very interested to see it because he was getting ready to do a project with uh, one of the singers in the documentary. I don't know if it was a narration thing or, or what the deal was, but uh, he was very gracious and he hung out a few times. And I guess I'm assuming all these people, did they expect passes or did they were they glad to pay? I don't think they expected passes, but apparently we were pretty free with the passes. Terry can probably <laughs> confirm. Well, we, we tried to take care of people who needed taken care of. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor came in there a couple of times. Wow. With her bodyguards uh, on, on her own. Of course, she was married to uh, John Warner at that time. So right. I mm -hmm. guess it would be mm -hmm. when 
something was going on in Richmond that had him here. Oh yeah. Tom, before we let you go, what else you what else do you remember? You got another good story? I bet you do. Well, the uh, it was in the spring of '84 when um, we premiered Futuropolis. Footnote: Futuropolis was a pixelated animation by former Richmond animators Phil Trumbo and Steve Siegel. That was very, of course, very exciting for me being in the film. But I remember Joe Seipel. Footnote: Joe Seipel is a sculptor who is also dean of VCU School of the Arts before retiring was the limo driver. He had an old uh, Cadillac, maybe a white Cadillac, and we drove in his Cadillac. The Biograph, especially in the 70s, was sort of a hangout for filmmakers like you would expect. Those people were in and out of the theater, and we showed 16 millimeter films after hours for little parties sometimes. It was not a formal headquarters for anything like that, but it, it definitely was a hub for people who made films as well as people who watched them. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. I actually have an interview that I did with Phil's nephew, Tyler Trumbo, because he's a Richmonder and he produced a documentary that I talked to him about uh, in a podcast a few months ago. So uh, anything else, Tom, before we let you go? Just one thing, and uh, Terry probably gets this too. I have had so many people over the years since the biograph is closed have come up to me and said, oh, you worked at the biograph. That was such a great place. I saw so many films there for the first time. You know, they'll mention Kurosawa and uh, Truffaut. It was a real uh, film education for uh, so many people here in Richmond, and they really loved coming for the community, the film community, and seeing the films, and um, and really missed it over the years. Of course, the whole business has changed, but that was a, a kind of a special time for film and repertory theaters. Yeah, well, was. the repertory theater phenomenon was national in the 70s. Uh, I'd say it started in the late 60s and went through the 70s. And then once you get into the 80s, you get cable TV, you get video stores. And so Mm -hmm. that market was just sliced up and it made it harder and harder to make a buck. And now with streaming, forget it. Sure. (laughs) It's great to see you, Tom. Thanks so much for dropping in. Okay. See you guys later. Bye, Terry. Bye, Jerry. Bye, Bye, Tom. So we left off, we were talking about Deep Throat and the devil in Miss Jones. And I know you had a little surprise that you pulled after having all those controversies with some movies that you showed. What was that about? In November of 73, uh, Judge Lumpkin came with his decision that put everyone on notice that if you play this film, you'll get busted. A couple of months later, I was thumbing through a film catalog and happened to notice a title of a film. It kind of jumped off the page for me, and it was The Devil and Miss Jones. Now, I didn't say The Devil in Miss Jones. I said and Miss Jones. Footnote. The Devil in Miss Jones was a porn follow-up for the director of Deep Throat versus The Devil and Mrs. Jones, which was a 1941 comedy starring Gene Arthur. Then it hit me that almost anybody looking at that title on a printed page or hearing someone say it would leap to the conclusion that it was the skin flick. Right, exactly. So we decided for the second anniversary party, we decided to show The Devil and Miss Jones, and we added a short subject, a Disney short subject, uh, Beaver Valley, to the bill. (laughs) to try to help people along and jumping to the conclusion. And we announced we would show the films free on our birthday, and uh, several thousand people showed up. Wow, wow, wow. How many got the joke and how many were disappointed and angry? Well, I'd say 
the way I remember it, 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 it sort of came in waves. You, you had people lined up almost literally around the block. And I went out and told the people that were beyond what I knew was our capacity, you're not going to get in. They stayed in line anyway for the, most of them. We filled the auditorium, which left several more thousand people out on the sidewalk. About a, a third of the people once Beaver Valley played and they saw the black and white movie, about a third of the people, maybe half left. Right. When we started going, there was one big theater, and then at some point they decided to convert it into a twin. Why was that decision made, and then what was that process like? Well, that was strictly business. That that was the owners in D.C., and it was a trend nationally uh, to convert cinemas over to twins. In the fall, late summer of 74, we shut down for three weeks and got converted. The construction crew worked literally around the clock. And of course, in those days, there were substances to keep you up around the clock. They're still around, Terry. <laughs> uh, well, but I don't know about it now. <laughs> right. Me either. I just know they're one, around. One of, my, one of my most vivid memories thinking about that sort of thing was maybe three or four in the morning being there and uh, playing liar's poker with a bunch of the construction guys. And oh, really? I don't know if you know how that game works. I do not. But if you have 20 or 30 guys playing it, it makes it pretty crazy. There were always suspicions, or and it was hopefully it was all after hours, that, you know, a little weed, a little beer was always around, but that was hopefully after hours, if at all, right? Well, uh, it was the 70s. Hopefully it was after hours, but it, it was during hours too sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, you, you have to have a movie theater refrigerator somewhere in it and then you got to put something in it so right, we right. ended up with beer around to mislead people and say that we were all drunk on duty no that, that you know i would say that was rare for anybody that worked there right it right. was understood that you had to have some sense of uh, propriety and what's allowed and what's not but it was the 70s jerry and yeah, you, yeah. you were around <laughs> in the theater enough to have a sense yourself of what went on there Oh yeah, I'm, and, I'm sure. and a lot, a lot of the parties after hours definitely the substances flowed. One of the midnight movies we kind of didn't get around to yet, but definitely can't forget because it was one of the monsters. Of course, was Rocky Horror. How did that idea come about, and then how did that develop? When it first was released in '75, uh, it was a total flop. Right. The 20th Century Fox put it on the shelf. They just said we we don't know how to promote this thing. We don't know who wants to see it. It was just too weird. A couple of years. Later, it popped up in New York at the Waverly as a midnight show. And without anybody prompting anybody to do it, uh, some of the people in the audience started uh, yelling out comeback line to what was said and done on the screen. And it caught on. It got to be fun to do. And it was a thing that was strictly in New York. People started dressing up in costumes, carrying on in the aisles, dancing, doing the time warp and all this stuff. So Fox tried to figure out how to get that to go to other cities. And when they tried to promote it as a thing to do, it didn't work. So we ended up getting it in the uh, summer. And what we did is we made a deal with Fox. They didn't want to let us have it because they said, we don't expect it'll do well in Richmond. Richmond's a bad market and we don't know how to promote it. I said, well, let me have a crack at that. So we worked out a deal where we could have Rocky Horror if we paid for the money to 
make a new print ourselves. They weren't going to risk making a print themselves, which would have cost five or six thousand bucks. Right. And then the deal was, if we did that, we could keep it as long as we wanted to. The way I promoted it was to uh, try to undersell it instead of trying to prompt people to get in on something that they didn't know what it was. I tried to promote directly to the people who already knew what it was and were going to D.C. or New York to see it, figuring that what I want to do is I want to get 50 people to show up the first night who know what it is, and they won't leave the theater bad-mouthing it because I over-promoted it and brought in people who are going to hate it. And it worked like a charm. After three or four weeks, we were selling out, and it stayed for five years. And... Uh, when we broke the record of Sound of Music for consecutive weeks in a row, which I think was 86 or 87 weeks or something like that, yeah, um, yep. we broke the record. And so I got a soundtrack of Sound of Music. I was working at CBS 6 then as a reviewer, and I did a report on Rocky Horror, which I will have a link to on the webpage for this show so people can see. Back in the 70s, we were all having so much fun. I know another thing that was interesting about the biograph that you did, and I don't know where this concept came from or why you wanted to do it, but you had art exhibits on the walls and sold the art. That was mostly in the first few years. Every now and then we did it later. In fact, Barry Fitzgerald had a show there in in 78, I think. I have several of those pieces, and some of my friends have some of those pieces, the ones that didn't sell. Yeah, Lois, Lois chokes on Lois. a gumdrop and all of those yep. things. And yeah. he put a price tags on them that had like forty nine ninety five too, which was pretty hilarious. <laughs> yeah. About that show for uh, Barry, here's a story for you. Uh, I got a phone call one day from a guy who said he was a lawyer, a local representative for McDonald's. And one of the things that Lois uh, choked on. An egg McMuffin. Right. And uh, he said that we had to take that down and that McDonald's owned the rights to that name and we couldn't use it. I called my friend Jack Colon, who was uh, a lawyer. He said that he didn't think that anything would happen, but that the main thing I ought to do is buy the painting myself. And I made the mistake of not buying it. Uh-huh. Uh, but so when the lawyer called back, I told him I wasn't going to take it down. And he said, well, you know, stand by for legal action, and it never came. Those six paintings, the Lois Choke series, are still extant. They are now hanging in Denver, Colorado, in a friend of ours, Mike and Elizabeth's house. I know there is a story that you have talked about. One time you found somebody in the theater who apparently really hated the movie because he was dead. Well, the movie killed him. It was Fizz. Uh, it was Fizz, a Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. Yeah. Sylvester Stallone. I, I knew the movie was bad. I just never knew it would be that bad. <laughs> What's the story behind that? Tom Campanoli knocked on the door of the manager's office, and I was in there. Uh, and he says, Terry, you better come down. I think we got a dead man in theater number two. And, of course, that was shocking. The guy was sitting in the chair. It was the last show of, of the night for Fist, so it was probably about 1230. And Rocky Horror was going on down in theater number one. Uh-huh. So in theater number two, you've got a guy sitting there dead, eyes open, looking at the screen. He just had bad health and died. He was 30 years old, which was wow. my age at the time. So it was a weird, uh, certainly a weird night. And surprising that Tom didn't bring that up when he was having his memories. Maybe he blocked it out. <laughs> well, <laughs> so the, the good side of that is that no respectable movie theater uh, is really fully fledged until you've got a ghost. So he may actually be haunting that noodle shop that's in that building now. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. 
nowadays there's obviously no biograph to go to. What are you watching when you sit down in front of the television or the computer screen? I watch old movies a lot more, and I'm not sure uh, what it is. Uh, when you say old movies, it's funny because I have a friend who actually was teaching a class at VCU a couple of years ago, and she asked them, what is a classic film? And they said, are you sitting down? Titanic. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So when you say old film, are you talking 30s, 40s? You're talking 70s, 80s? I'm talking 40s and 50s, some 60s and 70s. The, the movie industry, and I hope you would agree with me here, it went through stages where styles changed dramatically. And, sure. and so you have World War II before and after. Uh, I'm watching mostly movies after World War II. A lot of the film noir movies are late 40s and right. early 50s. I think that while there may be film buffs that know those films and like them, uh, I think a lot of people aren't aware of them, especially young people. Absolutely. And, and they were much better than people. a lot of people might think. And then another time that the movie industry changed dramatically was before and after Jaws. The blockbuster concept came right. along in 1975. We noticed that pretty dramatically at the Biograph after a couple of years. You could see that everybody was trying to imitate what had happened, the way they promoted Jaws, the way they produced it. Every, everybody wanted to make a blockbuster, right. which means big budgets. And so the, the, the small budget films that were so popular that ushered in the repertory cinema era in the late 60s and went through the early 70s, by the time you get into the late 70s, movies had changed dramatically. Now, there are right. still movies made that remind me of those days. But for the most part, movies between 1945 and 75 is when I say old movies, that's what I mean. Uh -huh. And there are a lot of great movies from that period of time. Well, Terry, I want to thank you, A, for all the wonderful cinematic experiences I had at the Biograph all those years, going there, working and not working. And I want to thank you for everything you've done since. And... Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Well, th thanks for uh, having me and, and resurrecting some old memories. That was Terry Ray, who was the manager of Richmond's Biograph Cinema for the first 12 years, starting in 1972. There are links on the webpage for this show at tvjerry.com of my first review from the Times-Dispatch, which I mentioned, my video story for CBS 6 about Rocky Horror, and a shot of the Biograph building now. Coming soon. In theaters. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. The superhero misfits are back to defend the universe yet again. Love Again. Priyanka Chopra Jonas, yes, she dropped in Citadel just last week, texts her dead fiancé's phone, but a new man answers. Sam Hewen, best known as the hunk from Outlander. What's love got to do with it? Not to be confused with the Tina Turner biopic. Lily James plays a filmmaker who decides to document her best friend's Pakistani-assisted marriage. RMN, set in a multi-ethnic village in Romania where a man returns from Germany and his ex-lover who works in the village. Book Club, the next chapter. Candace Bergen, Jane Fonda, Diane Keaton, and Mary Steenburgen return in the sequel that takes them to Italy. TV and streaming. Queen Charlotte on Netflix. This is a prequel that centers around the woman who became Queen Charlotte in the popular Bridgerton series. Bupkis on Peacock. Pete Davidson plays himself with Joe Pesci and Edie Falco as his parents and cameos including Jon Stewart, John Mulaney, and Steve Buscemi. 
Silo on Apple, another sci-fi future that follows the last 10,000 people on Earth living in a mile-deep home. The other two on HBO returns for season three. You can subscribe to this podcast through the usual platforms, or you can go to tvjerry.com, click on the podcast tab, and there's a link. Next week is an unusual mashup. Andrea Detweiler is a puppet wrangler who's worked on Sesame Street and other Jim Henson projects, as well as more recently on two Star Wars shows. And Guar figures in the story, too. This is Jerry Williams. Thanks for listening. See you next week. For more Sister, including literally thousands Thousands of of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com. That's a wrap.